ask you to remain standing for our second scripture reading. One of the primary passages that we'll be looking at for this morning's message. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 13 through 16. Give attention, people of God. This is the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord will abide forever. You may be seated. If you were with us in Sunday school this morning, I made sort of a promise that I would be giving um, the philosophical, theological, biblical foundations for some of the details that we were talking about as far as planting churches is concerned. Um, It will sound maybe like a bait and switch at the beginning. I promise you it's not. We'll get back to answering that question as we progress. But I want to talk with you this morning about the subject of evangelism. And I doubt very much that anything or much of anything that I have to share with you this morning will be new to you. I'm sure for most of you it will be something of a reminder, but as the Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul remind us, reminders are not harmful, they're helpful. And especially reminders of foundational principles, reminders that take us back to the basics. What is the best approach to evangelism? Common discussion, lots of different opinions. Some people will prefer street preaching. Other people say merely passing out literature from door to door in neighborhoods. Others would lean more toward personal, relational evangelism with the people with whom you work and play and attend school. Of course, this question, like most other questions like this that we face, the best approach to answering it would be to take a look first at what the scriptures set forth, and even more particularly, to look at the apostolic pattern and see what we find there. So, drawing primarily upon the book of Acts, where we see the apostles in action going forward in their fulfillment of the Great Commission, and in some of um, events and some points of data that we pull from the letters that they wrote to these congregations that they had planted through the course of their ministry, we get more or less this basic picture, I think. We've got the apostles, they would go out into a new place. And they would find some access point to some 
group of people. Sometimes they would walk into the marketplace and just start speaking to the crowds. Oftentimes in this approach, they would have some miracle that Christ enabled them to work. For example, at the, the temple, a man who was born lame, who's raised to walk, audience, and they begin speaking. Other times, as in Philippi, we see Paul kind of seeking out where is the synagogue, finding no synagogue, going down to the river where he finds a place where there's a group of women who are praying, and he would preach the gospel there. So you had this tip of the spear, apostolic presence, this infiltration of a new area, connecting with an audience, preaching, working miracles. In those places where the gospel was well-received, and particularly where the gospel was well-received to the point of a church being organized, they would teach these believers. They would organize these churches. They would give them their own elders. They would get their ministries in place and their body life in place. And then after sometimes shorter, sometimes longer periods, the apostles would then move on. They would go to the next place. But one of the things I think that's really important for us to wrap our minds around and to see from the stories of Scripture is that the departure of the apostles was not even remotely the end, the terminus of the evangelistic endeavor in that place. The apostolic infiltration was a necessary first step, a first phase. But again, as we look at the book of Acts, we can see that it was really only the initial, only the foundational phase. My grandfather was a member of the construction battalion, the naval, the Navy Seabees. And then the Seabees were often the first people on the beach. What the Seabees then did was build the infrastructure that would allow the follow-up forces to come and dock their PT boats and land their planes and those sorts of things. It's kind of what we see in the work of the apostles. They go in, they gather the crowd, they preach the gospel, they train the people, they establish the church. They move on. But what have they left behind? Well, the church that they've left planted there is not the end of that process. There's some ways in which we can see it as the beginning. In some ways we could say that the work that the apostles began in that place was carried on by the churches that they had planted there, and that that was the plan the whole time. It was almost as if the full mission of the apostles and the full-fledged work in which they were engaging hadn't really even gotten rolling until they had left, and the church took that work over. Sometimes we see, in particular in the book of Acts, with respect to the church of Jerusalem, the congregations, the people within those organized churches, began to take this work over even before the apostles have left, many of them remaining there and serving as a council for the church of Jerusalem. And perhaps we think, perhaps I think I would have been tempted to think this if I had been in one of those churches and it came to the point for Paul to depart, Perhaps I would think, oh, there goes the apostles. There goes, there goes the real 
evangelistic power. And it's true that we're here, but we're kind of the second rate, second bench. I guess we'll do in a pinch. But it really would be great if we could have just kept that apostolic presence and the ministry that they were doing and the form that that ministry was taking. But it seems as though what was happening as the apostles left, and again, I think part of their intent, was that the church was not left behind as, well, I guess it'll do while we go on. The church was the primary engine of evangelism that was left in that place. And not second rate, but an upgrade on what the apostles were able to do. I rarely telegraph my main points, but I'll do that this morning. Two main points. What I want you to see as we walk through these passages at which we're going to look is that the local church, the local congregation, is set forward for us in Scripture as the primary engine for fulfilling the Great Commission and the evangelistic endeavor on a long term and on a long gain and on a permanent basis. And I also want you to see as a second point, something I think you probably already recognize, is how important, and I'll overstate just a bit, and say how central this purpose is to the church's existence and the local congregation's very existence. Of course, this is an important time for you to consider these things as you're considering the possibility of planting a new church in a, in a new place. This is a good opportunity also for you who will be here should that church go forward to consider and reconsider and reset and rethink about and be reminded about what the purpose of this congregation in this place in Vandalia is and how that purpose can be best pursued. I don't think we think as much or as deeply as we ought about the larger purpose of the church. Maybe even less about the larger purpose of the local congregation. I think this is something that we can think more about. Now, there are some purposes that you hear discussed on this topic that are, are good and they're true. And you see these emphasized appropriately. Some purposes that are suggested for the local church are the shepherding of the sheep. Good. Others you hear talking about building up the members of the body. True, good, important. But both of these, both of these purposes for the local church really just raise another question, or two other questions. Well, shepherding the sheep, yes. To what end? Building up the body of Christ, building up the members of Christ. For what purpose? These answers are good and right, but they don't fully address the question of the overall, beyond itself, reason for the church's existence. Fortunately for us, Scripture presents a number of summary statements right on point. Statements about the church's purpose. There's a number of these, but I would say that my favorite begins in verse 5 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. 
You may turn there if you like. Peter here describing the nature of the church and its function says in verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A third purpose for the local church that we could have mentioned and upon which Peter seems to be focused here is the purpose of worship, offering spiritual sacrifices, being a temple. And this too would be a correct and good and very important answer to say that the church's purpose is to worship God. This is true. This is accurate. But I want to read on just a little bit further in that same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And this is, this is my favorite piece of Scripture on this topic. It might actually be my, my favorite piece of Scripture in, in the whole of the Word of God. It's just so centering for what we're to be about. And I want to show you that this morning. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's what you are, Peter says. And here's why you're that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter here says that the church has been created, it has been brought into existence for the proclamation of God's excellencies. But Pastor Brad, you introduced this section by saying you thought evangelism was kind of central. Where, Where are we going with this? Well, if you look, the excellencies, particularly in view in what Peter is saying here, are those excellencies associated with God's saving us from darkness and bringing us into his light. This is essentially an evangelistic purpose. And another thing it shows, that's a good thing for us to think about, is that there may not be as completely a distinct difference between worship and evangelism as we might be accustomed to think. When we worship, we are proclaiming the excellencies of God, particularly the redemptive excellencies of God. When we evangelize, we're doing the same thing. We're just doing it with a different audience. Now, Peter, as he portrays this purpose here, he mentions light. The evangelistic mission of the church is, in other places in Scripture, also described metaphorically as light as letting light shine. Now that idea goes back as far as the prophets. We heard in our first reading from the prophet Isaiah and this description of Israel's destiny as a people. I'll just read one and three. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What Isaiah describes here is God's purpose, God's purpose of his own light shining on his people 
being reflected by them. The end being that the nations would see it and they would leave their darkness and they would come to the light of Christ. Of course, we see, and there's certainly this going on in the Isaiah passage where we're speaking also of the greater Israel, not just the nation of Israel, but Messiah himself who comes to fulfill this mission on behalf of his people. And we see Christ describing himself in exactly these terms. He is, he says in John, he is the light of the world. But as we so often see, the same sort of phenomenon in the prophets, where is he talking about Messiah? Is he talking about a prophet? Is he talking about the nation of Israel? Is he talking about all of them? We see the same thing here. Jesus, after declaring himself the light of the world, says in Matthew 5.14, second scripture reading, to his disciples, you, you are the light of the world. And if we look at the Matthew passage again, we see that Jesus, when he says you, he's using the metaphor of a a city that's brilliant, that's radiant, that's shining. And this is the first thing that I want to present to you that I think will take us in that direction of this evangelistic purpose being more than we often think about it as an individual calling. It is. Each one of us, as we'll talk as we go forward, has a responsibility to engage in this. However, there's a sense in which it's the body as a corporate being in which this purpose is most fully accomplished and fulfilled. A city, a church as a whole, a body of believers has this mission to let the light shine. And just as in Peter, as we read in what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, it's the mission of the whole people of God to proclaim God's excellencies so that people will glorify our Father. And the shining done by the church is, in that sense then, also evangelistic. We see this evangelistic nature of this letting the light shine as we look through the various components of the light in many places in Scripture. When the church is to be shining a light, what, what's involved in that? What's included? If you, could, if you could take a prism and break that light up, what would you see composing it? Well, obviously, to begin with, the church is to shine forth with the word, with the gospel. It's, it's particularly in the speaking of this word that the apostles and Acts say that they have been made a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That light has a verbal, preaching, teaching, proclamation component, to be sure. And more than just the apostles, as Paul is reflecting upon the reports he's hearing from the church in Philippi, it's of them that he speaks when he says that they are shining as lights in the world. In what respect? holding fast to the word of life. An extremely indispensable, central, very important part of what it means to shine the light of God to the nations in darkness is the proclamation of God's word. But Jesus, 
in the passage that we read doesn't seem to be talking about that. He's talking about light. I'm sure this idea of the word is not far from his mind. It shouldn't be far from ours. But Jesus mentions another component of this light. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others, he says, so far so good, so that they may, if we said, hear your good word, we wouldn't be wrong, but it's not what he says. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter, never departing very far from the teaching or pattern of the connection of ideas of his master, includes this whole subject and what he's talking about, our being a holy people, shining forth the excellencies, our works, 1 Peter 2.12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Same pattern of words we hear from our Lord. I wonder, I wonder if perhaps we're not so accustomed to reflect as much as we ought upon how central good works are within God's redemptive purposes. A familiar passage, one that begins with probably what we're more familiar thinking about, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Paul preaches the gospel to us and reminds us of the centrality of the word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then emphasizes as clearly as he can. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We get it, the gospel. Not about works, not about works, not about works. And then he goes on. For we are his workmanship. Yes, God is the one that did it. Created in Christ Jesus. Yes, Christ is the one who does the work in creating us. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Paul says right here, as this is encapsulated very, very helpfully for us, good works are most emphatically not the cause of our salvation, but they are equally, emphatically, God's purpose for having saved us. This is the purpose for which we are now saved. It is, Paul says in Ephesians 2, the purpose for which we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, saved apart from good works, saved for good works. And this is not just true individually. This is true also corporately, as we see in my second favorite purpose statement. And that's Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, the gospel, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Things that we're supposed to be doing as a result of what God has done. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, back to the gospel with great force, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people corporately, for his own possession, Peter, Leviticus, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Works in Scripture are central to the church's calling. It is the shining forth of works to which Jesus refers. And of course, this cannot be separated from the shining forth of the Word in either direction. You can't have the shining forth of the Word and leave the works alone. You can't focus on works and leave the word out of it. They go together. They go hand in hand. And the works themselves, actually, the scripture says, contribute to this evangelistic and word-focused purpose of the church. It's the works, Paul says earlier in the same passage in Titus, it's the works that adorn the gospel. Titus chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. Skipping about a bit in that. He says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You've heard that a couple times already. Bond servants, he gives us one example, are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Good works are what adorn, Scripture says, the doctrine of God. They show that doctrine not only to be true, which they do, they also show it to be beautiful, and they show it to be attractive. Peter is writing particularly in the context of the Gentiles raging against the church, persecuting the church, abusing the church. But even so, Peter says, even in that context, it's the works of believers that are to grab the attention of the unbelievers. First Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, for the time is past, the time that is past suffices for you guys doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And then note what he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Gentiles notice that you're depriving yourself of all kinds of great fun. Why, they wonder. And it's this why and their wondering that leads them to ask, especially in contexts when not only are you not participating with them, but you're being ridiculed and in severe circumstances being beaten and imprisoned and persecuted for not joining them. What is with these people? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why are they asking you that? Because they see you're not doing what they're doing, and they see that you're suffering for not doing what they're doing, and they don't understand it. And they ask because they've seen your good works. 
Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Here we go again. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. People of God, the the church is called to shine forth in word and in work. And these two must go together. How are we getting back to the topic at hand? Let's see. Well, one thing we can say about this whole idea of light. Perhaps it goes without saying, could have gone without saying, that light is only functioning as it should when it's visible. But Jesus didn't think that that was something that could go without saying, did he? He had to remind us of something very obvious. 14 and 16 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You are a You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. The the light that the church is to let shine is not to be hidden. It is to be made as visible as possible. That's what it's for. If no one sees the light that may very well be shining, it shines in vain, Jesus says. You don't do that. You don't cover it up. You don't put it under a bed. So, summarizing at this point, this is the purpose for which Scripture sets forth the church as a whole, as the church of Jesus Christ universal visibly shining forth the light of the word and the light of good works so that men will see it and that God will be glorified. Central, central to what we're about, brothers and sisters, as the church at large and as the local congregation. Now, maybe it's easier for us to see why we would say this about the church universal spread throughout the world. But on what basis would I say this to you, covenant, or to every congregation with which I interact? Why would I say, your purpose as a congregation is this? What would I base that on? Well, one point would be in Revelation. The beginning of Revelation and John's letters that are conveying Christ's messages to the seven churches of Asia. Um, Each congregation is referred to individually as a lampstand. The church is referred to as a whole, as a light, but then each congregation in each of these places, lampstand, 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 almost a a franchise kind of idea. We have the church as a whole shining bright, but every place that that church is, we have the same function going on, shining forth with the word and shining forth with that work, the good works. Now, back to one of the points I promised. How do we know that we can do this? What is there that would lead us to believe that we're actually equipped as a local congregation to fulfill this mission that's placed upon the church as a whole, and I'm arguing placed on each individual congregation as well? Well, first of all, I would say that the local congregation is maximally equipped to do this, more so 
than the initial set of apostles that would have come into Vandalia, whoever knows how long ago that was. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, just going back a few points to this idea of visibility. The universal church is not visible. Unless we're flat earthers and we have a nice height. It's only the local congregation that people see with their eyes and hear with their ears. True visibility of a light-bearing body and hears in particular churches, in particular cities, on particular street corners, with particular signs, in particular groups of people, with particular networks of relationships in that place. That's how the church is visible, only through the local congregation. Something else about the, about the local church that I think shows us how maximally equipped we are for this job, to fulfill this purpose and this mission. And that goes back to the, the dual nature of a local congregation. And Paul talks about this all the time. It's one body, and it's composed of individual members. It has this individual, and it also has this corporate nature to it. How does that help us fulfill our mission? Well, think of this first of all. Think of how it's within the context of the corporate congregation that many of the good works that we're talking about are done. The way that we care for the sick and the poor among us, this is one of the things that in the book of Acts, as the deacons are being created, as they're meeting this need because of the, the widows and the, the lack that the widows are having, the church rallies round and it takes care of that need. And Luke is careful to tell us immediately on the heels of that, and the church multiplied and many of the priests came to faith. It was in that corporate body, as those members of that body were meeting one another's needs as a congregation, that that received attention. And the effect of that was people being added to the church. It's the way that we care for the sick and the poor among us. More than that, I think it's the way that we put up with one another. One of the underlying fundamental assumptions in all of the instruction that Paul gives us and how to interact with one another is that we need putting up with. We just do. It's not an accident to the life of the church. It's essential to the life of the church that there be people in the congregation that are hard to deal with. Why? Well, because corporately, we show how the weak, we show how the not sometimes very bright, we show how the super obnoxious are enfolded and encapsulated and welcomed in us as a family and as a body. The way that we strive to live with one another in love is something that only happens in a corporate context. Also, with respect to good works, it's often our corporate character as a congregation that allows us to pull together our resources to do good works that individually would be beyond us, our capacity, our resources, our ability. That's how this works in the corporate context. What about, what about this individual member nature of the church that makes it maximally equipped for this? Well, it's the individual members of the congregation, of the local congregation, that have the kind of regular, daily, 
ongoing interaction with those who are outside the church so that those things that are going on within the church are made known to those who aren't part of the congregation. I remember when my mother had to go to Mayo Clinic for a surgery, and I remember the church at the time, the church that Jeremy and I and, and Tracy were growing up in, the way that the people of the church gave to support my parents in that trip. And I remember a conversation that my dad had with my grandfather, and my grandfather heard what had happened, how the church had pitched in and how they were supporting him and how they were, and, and uh, he said, Michael, he said, those people treat you better than your own family. And my dad said, well, dad, he said, they, they are my family. It was that individual relationship that my dad had outside the church that allowed what the congregation was doing to be known out and about. I was at a conference in April, and there was a man there who told a story, and it had this, this dual character to it. There was a president of a bank, and he noticed all of his best employees were professing Christians. They were out in the world as individuals working in his bank and his company, and he was noticing them. And then he said, there's something going on here. I have, to, I have to find out what this is about. And he met with the man who was speaking at this conference. And the man said, well, come, come to church. And this was in the, in the south. It was in Georgia. And it was a strange day where there was actually ice covering the roads that day. And this man got in his car with his wife. They were very zealous to find out what the church was about. And they got there and they couldn't find parking because everyone in the church was there, even though hardly anybody else was out on the road. And he saw this these aren't just individuals in my place that are showing something that I've never seen before. Now I'm seeing as a body how they want to be together as a family. And that left-right punch brought this man and his family to Christ. That's with respect to good works on our mission as a local church and the way that we're equipped for it. We're a congregation with individual, uh, individual members I would say this is also the case with our proclamation of the word, the light of the word that we let shine as well. There's a corporate context in which we're sitting at this present moment, a corporate context in which the doctrine is promulgated and taught, which the faith, the word is preserved, where we learn it, where we learn it together. And sometimes, from time to time, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14, sometimes it's in this corporate context in which visiting unbelievers are brought to repentance. But more often than not, that's not how it happens. More often than not, it's through the various members of the body infiltrating out into the outside word that unbelievers are brought into direct contact with the word itself, brought into contact with ideas and with people with whom they would never have connected people who might never enter a local church. I think finally, kind of combining these two things, it's the corporate and the collective nature of the local church that can give the strength and the unity to larger evangelistic efforts that we undertake in concert with one another. Something else that Paul focuses on from time to time, especially with the individual membership, is the difference in gifting that each of us has. A lot of these big sorts of efforts take a lot of different kinds of people to make them work. I just think of our ESL ministry out of Light of the Nations. 
The core of that ministry is the teaching, and we have great teachers, but we also have childcare, and we also have food, and we also have setup. And so, again, one endeavor that the body, and this, in this case, two bodies, because you guys are giving us folks for it also, are combining their individual, different, distinct skills from one another, but combining them together in something that is more than the sum of its parts and its effectiveness as an outreach ministry. The other thing about that aspect is that this mission, letting the light of the word and letting the light of good works shine forth, this mission is one in which every single member of the body can and is called to participate in some capacity. There are numerous ways to be a co-laborer for the gospel. Not everyone has to be a street preacher. I'm really glad that there are some street preachers in here. But that's not necessarily what all of us are called to. But all of us are called in some way to contribute the skills and resources that God has given us to this larger mission of the church. And each of us should be seeking ways to serve in letting the light of the word and works shine visibly. This is the calling that God has given to the church. This is the calling that God has given to each local particular manifestation of the church. And this is the calling that he has given to each of the members of this and every church. The good news, though, brothers and sisters, as we've looked, it's a calling for which he has uniquely equipped local congregations and their members to carry it out. You have been given what you need to do this. I know that this is a church that pursues that kind of mission. Um, if we had nothing else to point to than the church plants that have all come out of this, that would be proof enough. I know the other ministries, the other things that you guys are engaged in with your, um, the air show parade and other things like that, these are the kinds of things to lean into, brothers and sisters. These are the kinds of things to be continually thinking about. What, what are we here for? Who are we? What darkness is around there, around us? What particular flavor of darkness? How can we reach into it? God's given this congregation a great mission. And he's given you everything you need to carry it out. And he's promised that he'll use those efforts to his greater glory. Let's pray. Father, it would be easy to be overwhelmed by the call that you have placed upon us as churches, as individual members. Father, help us to continually lean back into the arms that are supporting us. Help us continually to look to you as the source of the strength that we need, the source of the boldness, the source of the, the stamina that we need to carry out this mission. Father, I pray that you would help us, all of our congregations, to, to understand this mission I, we thank you so much for the, for the emphasis that we, that we place and that we receive on building us up as a body. But Father, help us to always remember that there's a, a, an outside end to that. Let us be outward facing as much as we are inward facing. And let our inward facing activity, Father, be for this greater purpose so that people will hear and they will see and they will know that you are a glorious God. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.